PFT Media. This is the major scale, jazz, past, present, future, and everything in between. Our idea of a magazine that meets a mixtape, with lots of interviews, lots of music, with lots of classics, the underrated, the unexpected, the unhindered, and the soon-to-be-heard. Episode 2, African American Art in the 20th Century, Civil Rights, the African American Experience, and Rallying Cry. This is a special presentation of the major scale with Cornell Fine Arts Museum's exhibit, African American Art in the 20th Century, on loan from the Smithsonian, tying together the exhibit's beautiful works of art by the likes of Jacob Lawrence, Purvis Young, Romare Bearden, and a host of others with the themes of jazz and civil rights. We'll take a look at the music of the era with the show's curator, Virginia Mecklenburg. But first, we start with Shaky Jake by Joe McPhee.
Shaky Jake by Joe McPhee. Complimenting this episode, recover civil rights and the African-American experience and the rallying cry. This is the period in our history where the rocket really leaves the launch pad and the arts take a bold step further. African-American life is in flux. The demand for change and equality is everywhere, often at the boiling point. There is tragedy concurrent with hope as leaders and legislation move forward. The world at large is taking notice of the civil rights movement. The art and music play right along with perfect precision. Here to talk about it is the exhibit's curator, Virginia Mecklenburg. Welcome. Thank you. I love that you're asking this question, Kyle, about the civil rights movement because it affects really everything and everybody that runs through this exhibition. Not always in an obvious way, but always as an undercurrent, as a thread that allows voices to say certain kinds of things. We forget sometimes we think of the civil rights era as the 1960s, but there was a lot of legislation that came through in the 1950s. Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas is probably the one that most comes to mind to most people. Well, think about being an African-American artist in the 1950s still dealing with Jim Crow laws in the South. And there's a fascinating story about Jacob Lawrence, who basically lived in Harlem. He was associated with important Harlem artists very much as a younger guy. He was the guy who was always listening. He was listening to the artists. He was listening to the philosophers, the musicians. But at some point, when he was still really pretty young, he had never been to the South. And he realized that he'd always felt Southern only because his mother had come from the South and pretty much everybody he knew had roots in the South. So in 1941, he decided to go to New Orleans. It was an absolute shock for him because although he understood what segregation meant, he had never really experienced in the way that it was operating in the South. So he did this absolutely wonderful painting called Bar and Grill that shows you, as you look at it, it's as though you're standing beside the bartender behind the bar looking out into the space of the bar. It's daylight. You can see blue sky and sunshine coming in. That first tells you that these are people who are daytime drinkers, not coming in after work at night. But as you look at this thing, you look out and all of the white people are on the left side of a wall that divides this space. The black people are on the right side of the wall. The white people have a ceiling fan. It's hot in the summer in New Orleans. And they've got a fan blowing around. The African-Americans do not. Part of what Lawrence was doing was pointing out something that was really not a good thing, the difficulties of living in the Jim Crow South. But he was not doing it in a way that's as obvious as what you would think. It's not like the African-Americans have the lousy side and the white people have the better side. It's that we're looking at these people all of whom have nothing better to do during the day than to go to a bar and drink. So this edginess to this painting that goes beyond the racial implications that he has very, very clearly laid out. Well, this is also a really interesting period where artists began to be true to themselves, especially musically. Bo Diddley refused to concede to perform hits of the day in lieu of the work he was known for, which rubbed out Sullivan the wrong way. This is when we see the emergence of heavy hitters like, you know, your John Coltrane, your Miles Davises, your Charles Mingus's, you know, James Brown, Motown, Gordon Parks photography. Artists begin to make statements about Jim Crow life. There's almost too many to mention. But this is also a period where a lot of this art, that's our identifying identity here in America, is made by African-Americans. And there was a lot of innovation going on. Well, it's happening at the same time as the United States declared it the cultural capital of the world. 
in terms of painting because the abstract expressionists were working mostly, not exclusively, but mostly in New York. So we're talking Willem de Kooning, Jackson Pollock, Franz Klein. These guys are producing this large-scale abstract work that is being declared the end-all, be-all, the triumph of painting. Well, one of the people who was very much part of that group was a guy named Norman Lewis. His name is not as well known, or at least for a lot of years it was not as well known. But Lewis painted these beautiful, full fields of abstract art. Although he said his art was only ever about art, if you look at them carefully and if you take cues from their titles, there's one in the exhibition called Evening Rendezvous. Well, it sounds like somebody having a tryst, right? As you look at it, I mean, these things take time. You can't just glance. It takes a minute of focus and thought. But you realize that it is a whole group of Ku Klux Klan figures out in a field. You see there's a very abstract painting, but there are these little white sort of conical shapes that dot this field. It's sort of a green background. There is a red area that's essentially a fire and then a lot of blue smoke. And as you look at it, you realize that it is, in fact, an evening rendezvous, but not a good one. Lewis was smart. He understood that the Ku Klux Klan wrapped itself in the flag, in the red, white, and blue of the flag. So he used those colors as a way to punctuate and define this space so that you get this incredibly conflicted sort of inner competition among values and morals that are coming out in this absolutely beautiful, amazing painting. In thinking about the civil rights movement, I was certainly it had an impact on everything, art, music, everybody's lives. But the thing that I find really compelling is the art that led up to it, and then the art that resulted in was made at the same time. Lois Melu Jones was a professor at Howard University for more than 40 years. She was an African-American painter who was really distinguished, but who told me she was a good friend. And she told me that when she was in her 30s and 40s, she used to send her paintings to exhibitions by the mail or have some sort of a freight company take her paintings to shows because she thought that if the museums knew that she was a black woman artist, she would have two strikes against her and her work would not be accepted. She also told tales of then going subsequently to the museum and looking at one of her paintings that had won a prize and talking with the security officer. And she said, you know, this is my painting. And he looked at her and he didn't believe her. He didn't believe that a black woman painter could possibly have gotten a painting accepted into this very prestigious show. So as I say, it was two strikes, that she was black and that also that she was female. The repercussions of those feelings come out in her work. When she did a self-portrait in 1940, she added in the background, she's sitting there with her paintbrush and easel and sort of a standard-looking artist self-portrait. But in the background are a couple of African sculptures that she had bought in Paris when she was there in the late 1930. And for her, it was an affirmation. It was a way of stating, I have African roots. I have an African heritage that I'm proud of and that I validate. So that's the kind of thing that ultimately artists are doing all the way through the 30s, 40s, the 50s. Some of the paintings become angry, if you will. Maybe nuanced and a little bit suffused, but angry. Well said. And it sounds like a perfect point to round out this first segment. Let's hear some music of uncompromising quality. We mentioned Bo Diddley earlier. We'll hear 
Pretty Thing, and then we'll go to Charles Mingus's classic protest song, Fables of Fabus, and ending it with Gigi Grice and his tune, Minority.
must be ridiculous, Danny Richmond. Oh, why are they so sick and ridiculous? Your brainwash and teach you
This is a special presentation of the Major Scale covering the Smithsonian's African American Art of the 20th Century with their curator, Virginia Mecklenburg.
That was all blues by Miles Davis from his landmark kind of blue album. We're continuing the subject of civil rights in conjunction with the exhibit, 20th Century African American Art. This is an interesting period because the music advances very quickly, as does the civil rights movement. There's a painting in here by Bob Thompson, and he was a fascinating artist for such a short life. And he brought the techniques of the old masters front and center with abstract expressionism. And if there was an individual who was at the crossroads of visual art and the jazz avant-garde, Thompson is the one. His associations with Ornette Coleman, he hung out the five spot. He was friends with beat writers like Amiri Baraka and Allen Ginsberg. And it kind of cements a legendary status, if not an underrated one. I mean, Thompson was fundamentally a, a rule breaker. I mean, the tragedy, of course, is that he died just weeks before his 29th birthday. He was not even 29 years old, and yet he left this body of work that is just astonishing. He had a lot to say. I mean, he was this peripatetic guy who'd come out of Louisville, Kentucky, and he was a rule breaker. He dealt with myth. He dealt with allegory. He did religious paintings. There are Christ. They're Madonnas, they're Christian saints. Was the man so totally true to himself? He went to Boston University to study pre-med, but he got there and spent a year and decided this was absolutely not for him. So he went back to Louisville and went to the University of Louisville, where he met Sam Gilliam, who was another rule breaker, certainly in artistic terms. Thompson ends up in New York and does this absolutely remarkable painting, unfortunately not in the Smithsonian American Art Museum's collection, that he called Garden of Music. And it's this wonderful, very sort of fluid painting of Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, Ornette Coleman, and several others playing their instruments in a garden nude. On one hand, the figures are all contemporary. On the other hand, it's sort of a ridiculous idea. But what he's doing is he's riffing on these historic paintings to talk about jazz and to talk about how deep-seated and deep-rooted musical tradition and artistic tradition was on what is happening that is some of the most avant-garde things that are happening at the very moment. He did an homage to Nina Simone. That's a phenomenal picture. One of the paintings in the exhibition is called Enchanted Writer, and it has this figure on top of a horse, and there's this sort of cross in front. And, you you know, initially you think it's a Christian cross, maybe. And down at, on the ground under the horse's hooves is this sort of devil-looking figure. So may well be St. George and the Dragon. It could be a kind of Pegasus figure. He had such an incredibly fertile mind and imagination that he made these pictures that can be, and certainly are, many things at the same time. You know, it was an assertion that, that the past has relevance even at this very moment. And even as he was moving from Paris to New York, he and his wife spent a year and a half maybe in Ibiza, Spain. I guess maybe the best way I can describe him is that he was a shooting star, meteoric, brilliant, fabulous, engaged. And he's one of those people that you wish you had somehow had a chance to know. He must have been incredibly engaging because he knew everybody. People just gravitated to him. Years ago, I met and got to know Amiri Baraka through a musician that I worked for. And uh, I knew of his friendship with Bob Thompson. And every time I would go to bring him up and talk about it, someone would distract us and change the subject. <laughs> like, man, didn't you know Bob Thompson? Anyway, now I have a vague memory as well. A few years ago, I think I recalled Melvin Van Peebles talking about how he used Thompson's work 
as a visual template for his movie, Don't Play Us Cheap. One of the things that for me is really interesting about Thompson, apart from, I mean, this man was his own true spirit, but he was doing these, not exactly abstract, but sort of an expressionist way, doing these paintings that the figures have fluid edges, the paint goes on very lightly, very loosely. And he was doing this at the same time that the abstract expressionists were really at their peak and identical in time to when the pop artists were beginning to do their work, 62, 63, right around then. And he struck a totally different note, and he was incredibly successful. And speaking of notes, let's play some music in the key of Bob Thompson, the painter, through his associations with Ornette Coleman. This is The Circle with a Hole in the Middle. W-H-Y apostrophe S W-I-S-E Africa 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 
mighty, ancient, beautiful Africa, creator of the human being, of speech, of music, of the dance, ancient, mighty Africa, beautiful Africa. But when you put your hand on your sister, made her a slave, watch out, Africa. Watch out, Africa, the ghost's gonna get you. When you put your hand on your brother, made him a slave, watch out, Africa. Watch out, Africa. The ghost's gonna get you. Ah! How did I get here on my back in the dark with the wind and water blowing through my ears? How did I get here in the dark? How did I get here in the dark with the wind and water blowing through my ears? Watch out, Obatala, Shango, save me. Save me, Isa, save me. How did I get on my back in the dark with the wind and water blowing through my ears? My brother the king sold me to the ghost. My brother the king sold me to the ghost. At the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, there's a railroad made of human bones. At the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, there's a railroad made of human bones. Black ivory. Black ivory. Wise one. If you ever find yourself somewhere lost and surrounded by enemies who won't let you speak in your own language, who destroy your statues and instruments, who ban your umbu baum. You're in trouble. They ban your um boom ba boom. You in deep, deep trouble. Huh. Probably take you several hundred years to get out. bottom of the Atlantic Ocean there's a railroad made of human bones black ivory black ivory black ivory But this man's 
There's a little set, some songs in the key of Bob Thompson, the painter, and a nod to civil rights. We heard Child of the World by Elaine Brown, considered one of the first ladies of song for the civil rights movement. And we heard Wise, Wise by the great poet Mary Baraka. And starting it off was Ornette Coleman, The Circle with the Hole in the Middle. And now we're going to continue with the music. Let's hear some artists who really flourished during this avant-garde period of American music. And we'll round out this episode with Marion Brown, one of the most individualistic, if not idiosyncratic composers America's ever produced. We'll hear his tune, Buttermilk Bottom. Max Roach, Garvey's Ghost, a nod to Marcus Garvey. And we'll end it with Archie Shep, Blues for Brother George Jackson.
This has been The Major Scale, jazz, past, present, future, and everything in between. Produced and created by Kai Legal and Chris Barani. Jazz Phantom is our theme song by Chomsk. Special thanks to the Smithsonian and their chief curator, Virginia Mecklenburg, as well as the staff at the Cornell Fine Arts Museum. Gisela Carbonell, Hein Bergy, Ina Heller, PFT Media, and a special thanks to Jack Starling. A PFT Media Production.